what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part seven of the story of the Kane brothers, Jeremy and Zachary, two boys who were convicted of murder in 2002, along with Mark Harper, two teens who said they were merely trying to defend themselves from a man who was attacking them, two teens who are now men, men who have grown up behind prison walls. In our previous episode, we started to look at the accounts of one of the prosecution's main witnesses, Paul Gillian, a corrections officer who lived opposite where this incident took place that afternoon. His initial statement was just two sentences long and really didn't give much detail as to what happened. He would be called to the police station that afternoon, in fact, just an hour after this incident had taken place. It was after the boys had arrived to tell police what had happened, and Mr Gillian was asked to identify them. On that day, he would say that Jeremy hit Mr Hill twice, once in the leg and once in the head. He didn't believe Zach had hit a victim at all and he didn't recognise Mark Harper. Gillian, his statement changed two or three times. I'm not sure exactly how, I just know they changed. I know they got longer because I'm sitting there like, it's like he couldn't even identify us at first. When he came to line up, he couldn't point none of us out. He looked me dead in my face, like in my face with a gun, and he couldn't identify me in the city jail. But then you turn around and you pointed all of us out in the courtroom. Like, how did you see? And then he says he's seen everything looking out a window. But if you listen to the 911 tape, which is, is, is gruesome, you don't really, I mean, it just sounds horrible. But when you listen to it, he's talking, he's looking out the window. His wife's on the other end looking out the window. They go running upstairs and downstairs to come out the front door. And on the way he stops, I guess he grabs a gun. By the time he gets outside, my brother has already got Mark up, and you hear his truck revving up like he's about to leave. So how did you see anything? How did you see anything? If you've seen everything that happened, by the time you ran, you've seen it. They're in the, they're out there in the, in the things with bats and sticks. Something's going on. Okay, he takes off running. By the time he gets outside, my brother, it's over with. I'm the only one still standing there stuck. 
you know, and, and, and Mark's sitting in his car looking just in shock, like he don't even know what to do. And I get in the car and tell him, man, drive, just go, go to your house. I call my mom on the phone, you know, and like, how did you see anything? How did the witness see anything? You know, I don't get it. 45 days later at Zachary's juvenile hearing, his memory of the events would change. Although he would state that it wasn't in fact his memory that had changed, but the original police report that was incorrect. He says that it was not Jeremy who hit Mr Hill, but the opposite, and was in fact Zach. Almost one year later, Mr Gilliam would be called back to court, and this time it would be to testify at the boy's murder trial. Whereas in the first three statements about the events, he would tell police and the court who struck Mr Hill and how many times, identifying the boys by name. However, at this point during his testimony with the prosecution, there is no mention of names at all, merely referring to the boys as the teenagers or juveniles, like here. I seen one of the juveniles take a bat and give him the stick away from the other juvenile. And this is how that moment was originally described in the police report from just an hour after the incident. Witness 1 stated that he recognised subject Zach Kane as the one holding the bat that Jeremy Kane took out of his hands. Witness 1 stated that he does not think subject Zach Kane struck any blows to the victim. Upon cross-examination, the defence attorney would press Mr Gillian on his recollection of what boy did what to Mr Hill and how many times. I guess people have asked you, Mr Gillian, to try to be specific about who struck whom. They have done that, haven't they? No, sir. Well, you have been specific about who hit whom or where, haven't you? Yes, sir. Is it fair to say, Mr Gillian, though, that the more you think about it, the more you're not sure who hit who? When they started swinging, everybody was swinging. I don't know who hit who. The boys and their families have been so confused as to why Mr Gillian might say things that they don't believe to be true while up on the stand and why his eyewitness account would change so many times that one afternoon Jeremy's wife and cousin would in fact decide to go and visit Mr Gillian at his home. So yeah, it was 2017 um, after they were set off for on parole and... I was really nervous. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a private well, investigator. No, of course. When did you make the decision to do this? Like, did you already have this in your mind that you wanted to do it? Or, you know, did someone suggest it? How did, how did the idea come up to actually go around and just, like, knock on the door? Um, you know, it was kind of Jeremy's idea. Um, you know, we were just kind of grasping at straws. Hey, um, let's just go talk to these people and see if they'll be willing to talk or help or, I mean, and so that's just, me and his cousin Stephanie got together and went over there and knocked on the door and he invited us in. So Jeremy's wife and cousin turn up at Mr Gillian's home unannounced and not quite sure about what reception, if any, they might get. They switch on a camera and make their way up to the drive. So, I mean, walking up that driveway, I mean, you must have had your heart in your throat. Yeah, and he was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, um, so we just crossed our fingers and... As they stand and wait, all of a sudden, the door opens. Hey, how are you? Hi. Hey. And there he stands. Hey, I'm Stephanie. 
Mr Paul Gillian. A much older gentleman than the one that jumped from his porch that day to intervene in a confrontation that took place in front of his home. The two ladies tell him why they are there and to their amazement he invites them in to his home to talk. Mr Gillian? Yeah. Hey, I'm Stephanie and this is Amanda. Oh, hey. Hey. Great to meet you. We just want to talk to you if you had a minute. We're friends with the Kane family from Pleasant Grove. Mm, it's been a long time. Yeah, probably. Uh, y'all want to come in? Sure. Sure. Oh, okay. Apologize for just popping up on you, but. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> and he, luckily, he was very nice to us and let us come into the house and he talked to us for a little bit. So. The three all sit down in his living room, and he tells them his wife is out at church as they begin chatting about this and that. The two ladies, obviously still quite shocked that they've even got in the front door, do their best to broach the subject of that day, being very careful about what they say and how they say it. Mr Gillian, during the entire conversation, is obviously still saddened by the events and how it all played out. He continues to offer any help he can for the boys, not even realising that they are still in prison. Find anything that would get, you know, if somebody remembered something or said, hey, I didn't see it all or whatever... You know, then we could maybe get them some help. Yeah. Because it's all politics. Well, see, I, I heard them out there fussing and cussing and first one thing and another, and I thought, oh, Lord, what's going on? And I was surfing the TV in the bedroom, and I went out there on the porch in the balcony, and uh, I said, Lord have mercy. And, uh, but, yeah, all of them had crazy ball bats like a fool, but, yeah, I thought they'd already be out. As we know, Mr Gillian was actually a prison officer at the Young Offenders Institution where Zach would eventually be held. He brings that up in conversation with the ladies. If there's any way I can help. Well, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. I mean, mean, Well, we appreciate it. No problem. I mean, I had that little, uh, Eric? What was his name? The youngest one? Yeah, Zach. I had him at youth. Yes, yes, yes. Ah. But, uh, I bet he was scared to death. No, my boss told me to stay away from him. Oh, I, oh yeah, I that was a conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I tried, Lord. Zach talked me through the moment that he and Mr Gillian would actually come face to face at the Young Offenders Institution after he'd been arrested. I mean, just him just shaking his head and, I mean, he said some stuff. I can't remember what exactly what it was. It was just pretty much like he was feeling bad. That's what it looked to me the way he was talking. I told him I couldn't talk to him. Yeah. But he was saying some stuff about, you know, just feeling bad about the situation and us being like, it seemed like he felt bad about us being locked up. It's like he felt like, he, it, the way he looked, it made it look like his hands were tied. Like he couldn't, like he couldn't, I don't know. It just seemed like he couldn't tell the truth. Eventually, as the conversation continues, the ladies tentatively bring up the timber that the boys have always said that Mr. Hill had in his hands. I guess that's all we got to say. Situation. Yeah. I'm just yeah. seeing if there was anything that you could remember that could maybe help. No, not really. Uh, I mean, but you really didn't see everything. If you, By the time you got out there, they already had the bats and stuff. Oh, did, yeah. did you see him with the landscape timber too, or was that already gone? Um, Mr. Gillian, as we know, has always said that Jimmy Hill, from his point of view, never had a weapon that day. At no point did he ever see Mr. Hill carrying any weapon whatsoever. However, during this conversation, he says the following. No, it was already gone. He had a landscape temper when he came down the road. Yeah, he had a look. It looked like a four by four. Yeah, I heard. But then they went back, the police couldn't find it. Yeah. 
But then he tells him, he says in a statement, like, up there on the stand, I think he said that the man didn't have a weapon. But then he turns around and tells uh, my brother's wife and, and finally admitted that the dude had a stick. Yeah, I heard that. They got him on recording playing that. When he said that, did you kind of go, I mean, you must have been, your head's been going, oh, my God, he, he, he's just admitting that he's seen this thing and he said on the stand that he never saw a thing. Yes, um, but how, I mean, I'm just not really good with that, so I... I didn't kind of want to pry too much, but then at the same time, you want more questions, but then you just kind of want to keep him talking. And yeah. you know, Stephanie did most of the talking. You know, I kind of I was ready to get out of there. I was like, oh, what's your phone number? Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so luckily, she kind of kept the conversation rolling. Now, does this instantly mean that Mr. Gillian has been lying this whole time? Not necessarily. Of course, he could be just confused. All this information is well and truly out in the sphere. He would have watched a lot of news reports. He would have spoken about this event so many times, and he could just be confused. The conversation continued to go back and forth with no real major moments of sudden omissions of saying that he was told to say certain things. In fact, to be fair, the ladies asked him outright if the DA ever asked him to say something that he didn't in fact see, and he says no. Hey, let me ask you what I was thinking. When sure. I know when the DA, you know, talked to you and stuff, did they tell you certain, do you remember them telling you to say certain things or anything like that? Oh, no. Okay. No. Uh, I mean, none of them are even down, most of them are dead anyway. None yeah. of them are down there anymore. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know if they, like, you know. Oh, forced. No. Yeah. It, uh, Cause, I mean, that I is until the conversation is coming to an end, outside of his home. The three are all on the front porch. Again, just exchanging pleasantries, Mr Gillian talking about a new home they're moving to, his family who live nearby, and then again, offers any assistance he can, and says this. But yeah, actually, I, I mean, God, I wouldn't even think about going, being in a place like that, but anyway, I can help them shoot, just let me know. Well, sure will. Well, I'm going to have to perjure myself with all of them. No, no, that's the I thing about, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> perjury is, uh, it's already over. We've looked it up and the lawyers told us. Yeah. After five or six the biggest years, question is why Mr Gilliam would be concerned about perjuring himself. Perjury is the act of lying on the stand while under oath. So unless he said something on the stand that was not true, then there should be no reason for him to be concerned over perjury. The family have since tried to speak with him again, but this time were confronted with a rather angry Mrs Gillian, who in no uncertain terms told them to leave him alone and he would not be speaking with them again. You spoke to her afterwards and she wasn't very um, uh, accommodating, shall we say. He said he could help um, let him know what he could help us with and gave us his phone number. And I called him the next day and she answered and she was pretty... um, straightforward with me to leave them alone and not to bother them and he didn't lie then and he's not going to lie now hi um is paul there who's calling um this is amanda i spoke with him yesterday right what did he tell you yesterday is this virginia it is it is. Hey, um, I was just calling um, him back. He he talked to us yesterday and said he was willing to help us out with anything that um, he could. And so we were just going to see if there was a better time that we could come and speak to the both of you. Well, let's put it like this. Like he told you yesterday, he didn't lie before. He's not going to lie now. He 
told the truth then, he will tell the truth now. But look, lady, do you know what y'all have done to us mentally with all this? All this in the back of our minds, we have thrown all that away. We don't want to help out. We don't want to do anything. Please leave us alone. Okay, we will do that. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As we know from each of the boys, they have all stated that Cristiano, the other teen who was in Jeremy's truck that day, would lie on the stand in order to have his own murder charge severely downgraded, which of course it is. As I was reading through page after page of paperwork on this case, I would come across a couple of handwritten statements. Statements made by two young guys at the time. One by the name of Eric and the other called Justin. Hello. Hello, is that Justin? It is. Justin, this is uh, Jack Lawrence, the journalist in Australia, doing the story on the Kane brothers. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, sir. I hope it's not too late calling you. I do apologise. Justin is a cousin of the Kane brothers. Both Eric and Justin's statements speak of a night when they were waiting in a parking lot of Oak Mountain Amphitheatre before heading into a concert. They were sitting on the back of a truck with another guy called Tyler. As they're chatting, Justin would ask Tyler, who was a friend of Chris Stano's, if he'd spoken to him lately, which he had. Justin then asks him what he thinks about Chris's lying on the stand. There was a written statement that was made, very short one, in regards to um, the Chris Stano situation. Do you, do you remember that much? I mean, it was written a long, long time ago, but pretty much in a nutshell, me and uh, another friend of ours and a guy named Tyler was uh, sitting on a tailgate getting ready to go to a concert, and uh, I asked him, you know, they were friends and everything, and I asked him, you know, if he talked to Chris Stano, and uh, he said, yeah, he said that he had talked to him. I said, well, did he tell you anything about him lying on the stand? And he said, yes, that the DA had told him what to say and, you know, how to say it and everything, I guess so. I guess so he wouldn't get in trouble. And, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit longer, and then that was, that was the end of the conversation. 
Uh, how old were you? Do you think when when this conversation were had? Obviously, it was a long time ago. How old How old were you been? It's had been around twenty. I'm trying to. Yeah, I was between eighteen and twenty years old. And was this around the time the boys had been convicted? Yes, it would have been right after they were convicted. I'm sure. Yeah. Was it quite a known thing that Chris maybe had lied on the stand? I mean, you know, you said you were sitting on the tailgate chatting and, and it was sort of brought up, hey, you know, have you spoken to him about why he lied? So was it a kind of a, a known thing that he, he may not have told the truth? Well, I mean, we knew about it because, I mean, we, you know, knew what the boys had said and their stories hadn't changed very little, if any, since day one. Mm. And then he gets on the stand and, of course, I wasn't in there. I didn't know if they was me to testify or not, but anyway, he gets on the stand and you know starts saying stuff that you know didn't happen. So after that conversation, did you? I'm assuming did you tell your family that what had been said? Yeah, I told my uncle Steve, which is uh, Zach and Jeremy's dad. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and he wanted me to write a statement down, so I so I made a made a statement and wrote it down and gave it to him. And I'm assuming that's the last really you probably ever heard about it. Yeah, pretty pretty much. That was the last I heard about it. And you weren't friends with Chris Stano at all, or it was just that he was a friend of a friend. Yeah, I mean, he he was just. We'd always be places, and he'd always be there. I didn't I didn't really have a problem with him or anything. He seemed nice enough. Yeah. Uh, and see, we played we played park ball growing up, so pretty much all the boys in Pleasant Grove from a certain age group, we all played baseball. Yeah. So right. you might be on somebody's team next year, and then somebody else's team next year. So it was all real. Everybody knew everybody in this small town. Sure. So the trial would run its course and eventually the jury returned their verdict. Here's Jeremy. So how long did your trial last for? Two days jury selection and five days for the trial. On the last day, they were going to continue until the, uh, uh, either make them the jury stay for the weekend or continue until Monday you've got like an hour to make a decision or we're going to bring you back. So they just went in there and made a decision and, and you know, he pretty much forced them to make a decision. So they, they only went out for an hour and they came back? Yeah, it's something. I think they had went out for like an hour or so and then they come back with some questions and it's questions the judge couldn't answer as far as like, well, you know, they wanted some more information about, well, what made the man do this or what did, and they, they you know, just stuff the judge feed us. You just got to go off what you heard and I can't, can't you know give any more details or whatever and then, and then i think at that time they told them well you know it's, it's getting late in the afternoon uh they'll make a decision by uh, you know the next hour or two or whatever time you gave them then you would be, we'd be bringing you back out if he said for the weekend or for monday but i always basically told him if y'all don't come up with a decision today you're coming back until you make a decision so pretty much made them make a decision so they come back and obviously they find you guys guilty of the crime. Um, yeah. I mean, that must have been pretty hard to hear as a young bloke. I mean, it'd be hard for anyone, but as a, you know, as a kid, it must be, must be extremely yeah, hard. And I also know that some of the jurors were, I, mean, I remember I was crying. I know some of the jurors were crying also. And I know an investigator talked with them after the fact and some of the jurors stated that they were under the impression that we were getting some type of youth for offender and probation because we were juveniles like the other kids got. They didn't realize that we were going to adult prison. And, you know, that goes into the fact, you know, like well, how they kind of preyed on the jurors. They used people that were, you know, I mean, less educated in the system, didn't understand what was going on, and did not realize that we were actually being considered as adults. They thought we were, we were kids. And we'd get like a lesser sentence. They thought we should have got punished, but not 
to the extreme of what we got. It was never ever, sp- ever spoken about at trial that you were being tried as adults and would be going to adult prison. I, I don't remember for sure if that was actually explained. I know it wasn't explained in the way they understood it. Um, I think it was one of the situations where they just expect them to understand it. But I don't. I don't think it was ever said that that we would be going to adult prison or, or none of that. I don't, I don't believe so, no. Here's Zach talking about being found guilty. Did you still have some hope that everything would be fine at the end of the day and that, that you would be found obviously not guilty and that this was self-defence? Yes. I never thought I was going to prison. Not once in my, not, not my wildest dreams. You know, the lawyers are really stroking your mind and ego to make you feel like, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's going to work out just fine. But if we would listen to the first lawyer, which told us, our first lawyer had uh, David Cromwell Johnson. He told us he couldn't take the case to trial because it was too much publicity. If there was no publicity, oh, he could get us off. But the publicity is what got us in prison. So he dropped the case. He, he told us, to but the next lawyer we get, oh, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to I'm gonna get it. We're going to beat this. We're going to, and I'm like, really? So when they go to deliberate and they come back out quick, he said, it's, it's good news. It's good news. They came back out fast. That's good news. I said, no, it's not. I said to him, told him, I said, no, it's not. He was like, what you, I, he said, I'm watch, watch. I said, no, it's not. It's not good news. Guilty. So he's like, well, uh, we're going to talk to him about sentencing. When he comes to sentencing, he files a, files a motion to have the lesser sentence from 20 years to 10 years. Okay. I tell him that's not a good thing because he granted it too fast. The judge granted it too fast. He said, that's a good thing. That means he's going to give you lesser time. I said, no, it doesn't. It means he already knew what he was going to give us, so it didn't matter if he granted it anyway. Yeah. So he grants it. And we get 35 years. Then the lawyer wants to tell me that I'll be here for the appeals and all this stuff. Uh, yeah, when you get another check, you know, when you get more money, when you want more money, you, you, you're going to be you're going to be there for me. Come on, you ain't there for me. You don't care about me. Here's Mark. So do you remember the day that um, the jury came back to find you guys guilty? Uh, yeah, we had adjourned from the jury around like 2.30 something like that and so like we go go outside and you know we're standing there and you know they they say if the verdict don't come back before five or six or something like that then we'll come back on monday so it was like not much longer left and then they said oh the jury came back well my lawyer was thinking that's a good thing you know we all go back in i'm nervous as shit you know and, uh, you know, they read that, uh, you know, my, mine all first. You know, find Mark Harvey the Senate guilty. And then the whole courtroom went crazy. And you know, I kind of lowered my head, like, because uh, if, you know, no, I'm guilty, you know, they guilty. And I think Jeremy or Zach, one of them flopped in the floor. Uh, one of them fell in my lap, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of just in awe about everything. And I figured out I got life, you know, in there. Uh, but went to sentencing. It was like six weeks later. The judge uh, he uh, approved a petition for my sentence to be ten to life instead of twenty to life. Uh, everybody put in that motion, and you know. And I'm the only one that got accepted. So my lawyer's like, look, if you get, if you get 10, if you get 15, you know, like you, you could get good time while you're good. You could be out three and a half, four years, you know. Now the judge is presiding and he's 
you know, was bringing my sentence down. And when he said 35, you know, I just, I, I've lost, from that point, you know, I lost hope in everything. As we've spoken about in the past, this situation, like many others, leaves a trail of devastation behind it. Of course, there's the victim and the victim's family. And also, three teenagers who are off to prison leave behind their own families. The parents of these teenagers now having to see their children carted off to a violent institution where anything could happen to them. Here's Mr Kane, the boy's father. They'll be in the entire time these these guys have been in, in prison. I mean, it's it's a prison sentence for for you guys as well. You know, it's been a tough it's been a tough road. You know, the first the first few weeks of this thing, it was like a phone call every five minutes, and you know those phone calls are not cheap. Yeah, some of my phone bills when it first first happened was up in the thousands of dollars. <laughs> I mean, if you can imagine, uh, you can imagine two kids, fifteen and sixteen, getting put in, in county jail or whatever, and they're screaming their heads off and everything else. And, they didn't really want to ever go to prison, uh, you know, but they finally wound up in prison. After they got in prison, they basically liked it a lot better in county jail. But, you know, it still wasn't no picnic place, I can tell you that. I'm sure about, I don't know what happened, but I know it couldn't have been, you know, easy for a 15 and a 16-year-old or 17 or 18 or however it was that trip to go to prison. It's just, a, it's just a horror story that nobody should ever have to face for, for a lie. I mean, you know, if you did it, if you actually did what they said they did, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even have paid for a lawyer. I mean, if I, my kids done something like that and I thought they deliberately went out and killed somebody, that's, that's just their bad luck. They're going to jail and they're going to serve their time. But that's not the case. You have one minute remaining. And that's all we have time for. But coming up in our next episode, three teenagers are off to prison. They're not going to a facility with other youngsters. They're being sent to men's facilities. And they're not going to be segregated from the other inmates. They are told, point blank, by the people that run the prison, they will have no option but to fight for their survival. And the warden called me in front and said, all I want you to do is fight. He told me, he said, I want you to fight. He said, you're the youngest kid in my prison ever been in one of my prisons. He said, I want you to fight. And he said, you're not going to get in trouble. And it was basically the same thing. I mean, they expected you to fight. I mean, they wanted you to. If you didn't, then they knew that you were not going to do very well. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. Earsay.